Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. Thanks for your patience. We are dealing with a little bit of Wi-Fi issues, such as life. Uh, I am Nomi Key Konst, and this is Wednesday, the 13th, 13th day, that is, before the end of this election, hopefully, barring any coup, barring movements on the streets, barring Trump willing to get out of office, barring that we win. The 13th, lucky or unlucky day. Not really sure at this point. This is a country uh, in rough shape, to say the least. Half a million people, half a million people, 500,000 people are out of work in New York City alone. And those are the only, those are the numbers that have been reported. COVID is surging again across the country. New York City and the surrounding Triborough area is going under lockdown. The rest of the country most likely is going to be soon doing the same thing. They're doing it overseas in Europe. This is what we expected. This is what the scientists told us was going to happen, especially as it gets colder. There are health fears, economic fears. They're all rising. But our leaders in Washington are acting like the Romanovs, who didn't seem to realize that there was an uprising right outside of their palace. The more we descend into crisis, the more our politicians seem completely out of it. Regular people, everyday folks are suffering and Trump, Pelosi and McConnell are dickering. That's bad enough. But can we talk about California Senator Dianne Feinstein? In fact, I was on, of all places, Fox News this morning on the news side, uh, talking about Dianne Feinstein's cozy performance with Lindsey Graham. Can we roll that clip real quick, Dorsey? Well, that moment landing Dianne Feinstein in hot water, some Democratic groups are calling on the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee to step down from her post for being too nice to Republicans at Judge Barrett's confirmation hearings. Here's what Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer had to say. I've had a long and serious talk with Senator Feinstein. That's all I'm going to say about it right now. Namiki Konst is a former national surrogate for Bernie Sanders and former New York City public advocate candidate. Namiki, great to see you. It's hard to imagine Dianne Feinstein, you know, she's 87 years old. She has been around politics for a long time. Hard for me to imagine uh, the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer calling her on the carpet and giving her the what for. What, what do you think of that comment? I mean, it's it's hard to imagine Chuck Schumer uh, standing up for progressives. So that's just another comment right there. Yeah, listen, I mean, there's there's a debate over right now whether or not um, bipartisan exists, bipartisanship exists in Washington. I actually think yeah. that's all that exists in Washington. It's it's why even though there's a standstill on hot blooded issues, you've got the centrist Democrats, the centrist Republicans, really uh, protecting corporate interests. And the reason why these groups are frustrated with Diet Senator Feinstein is because in a moment when the stakes are just so high, when income inequality is worse than ever, when the economy is tanking, to see Senator Feinstein not just act in a civil way, which all senators should do, all lawmakers should do, it's that she didn't do anything. And then she complimented the Republicans who are pushing through this process. So my question is, how could she be so checked out? At a moment when Democrats and the public in general are denouncing Trump and McConnell for jamming through a Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, what does the senator from the Pacific Heights, of course, do? She says this was just the best hearing ever. She complimented Lindsey Graham. And then, and then, she gives Lindsey Graham a big, fat hug without masks on. Does she even know what's going on in America? Does she realize Lindsey Graham is in a tight fight for re-election? 
The poles are so close, within the margin of error. And hugging him might just, I don't know, maybe go into his campaign ad. Seriously, even in your own best interests, Senator Feinstein, keep the guy at arm's length. Even if you think there's no way forward, taking on that fight excites folks, especially when the Senate margins and polls in South Carolina alone are so close. Even if you don't care about the movement or are out of touch with anything outside of the beltway, wouldn't you still, Senator Feinstein, care that the Democrats win the Senate? It's in your political interest as a potential future chairman of the Judiciary Committee. But no, you hug your pal, and your pal can now be labeled as a, quote, bipartisan Republican who carries the water for Trump's agenda, of course. This is just flat-out cronyism. This isn't politics. This is cronyism. This is why the Republicans keep outmaneuvering us. Senator Feinstein says that all she could do was point out what a conservative Amy Coney Barrett is and how that could change the court, but she couldn't really do anything else. That so misses the point. You gotta put up a fight. You gotta attack the, pro the process. Progressives, Democrats, hell, the whole country doesn't support this pre-election rush. So hammer them for it. We may still lose. Actually, it's probably gonna happen. We're gonna lose. But in losing, you can rally people. You rally voters. You lose today to win tomorrow. That's what activists do. No reason why you can't do it too, Senator. I mean, if you aren't thinking movement-minded, at least think politically. The fight isn't always about winning. The fight is for mobilizing. The movement was busy with this election, so Senator Feinstein and her colleagues should have picked up this, this, this nomination process and shoved it back in Mitch McConnell's face, taking that movement inside the Senate, playing politics with them, using their leverage against them. The public, the majority of the public was with them on that. The process was illegitimate. The Democrats are losing an opportunity. They have lost an opportunity. Remember how Cynthia Nixon tied Andrew Cuomo, Governor Andrew Cuomo, up in knots when she challenged him in 2018? I don't know if we could have ever won that race, and I worked very closely with that campaign to make the best case. But even in losing, we so distracted Cuomo that we knocked off his crony deal with the New York Republicans and won back the state Senate. And we have voting, voting changes now, many reforms, uh, Medicare for all is essentially on on the, the, the floor right now, we could take that for a vote. This wouldn't have happened if Cynthia Nixon had not gone on The View and exposed the corrupt deal for the independent Democratic conference that was caucusing with Republicans. And then the New York voters organized and they voted the IDC out. But without Cynthia and the tons of media coverage she got, Cuomo may have put more energy and time into protecting his cronies instead of himself. You get that? That's how we win. Well, now we can win the U.S. Senate by revealing Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and the rest for who they really are. Hugging them is not just the bad, a bad look, Senator Feinstein. It is a gift to them. It seems like the public is getting this crisis better than any of the politicians are. Are we surprised? It isn't just that they say the court nomination should wait until after the election. This is about something much, much bigger. We're surrounding the palace. Do they know what's going on outside of it? 
All right, we have a wonderful show today. Uh, first up, we have Tennessee Senate nominee Marquita Bradshaw. She's a progressive. Uh, she she shocked the world by beating the DSCC candidate, and now they're not showing her a lot of love. But you know, we need to prop her up. We need to make sure people know that uh, what's happening in Tennessee because there's a real shot to win another Senate seat, but with an actual progressive. And then later we have Jordan Zacharin and Nabila Islam on to talk about the day's politics. There is a lot of them. But first, here are the stories at the top of my newsfeed. Purdue Pharma, the maker of Oxycontin, will be pleading guilty to three federal criminal charges related to its role in the opioid addiction crisis. This settlement will total over eight billion dollars. According to the AP, the case is, quote, the highest profile display yet of the federal government seeking to hold a drug maker responsible. And the Sackler family, who are particularly responsible for orchestrating the addicting the addiction epidemic in the name of profit motive, are held criminally liable. But Massachusetts State Attorney General Maura Healey would like to see the Sack Sacklers held more accountable, saying, quote, Justice in this case requires exposing the truth and holding the perpetrators accountable, not rushing a settlement to beat an election. End quote. On Tuesday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell reported to GOP colleagues that he had engaged in talks with the Trump administration to hold back on a COVID-19 stimulus pa package until after the election. Given the passing of the package would require cooperation with, wait for it, wait for it, Nancy Pelosi. McConnell claimed in his talks with the White House that the passage of such a deal would affect the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. These developments do not only reveal the control that Trump lacks over his own party, it drives home the fact that where the most important political decisions are concerned, the well-being of American people is never the primary consideration, and that happens on both sides. Carla Monterosa shared her experience with racial bias in COVID-19 treatment in a recent NPR story. Monterosa is Latina, and she struggled with the symptoms of COVID-19. She described a fear of having her condition downplayed and minimized, as is the norm for many women of color who seek health care without this crisis. Even as Monterosa showed low blood pressure and the unpredictable oxygen levels in the ER, she said that the doctor told her, quote, I don't think that much is happening here. I think we can send you home now. Monterosa hopes that her story will illustrate how COVID-19 disproportionately affects people of color, particularly women, and how the improvement of our healthcare system is bound up with the pursuit of racial justice in America. We will be back in a minute with Tennessee Senate candidate Marquita Bradshaw. Stay tuned. thrilled to have our next guest on. She is running for Senate. She's the Democratic nominee in Tennessee for the U.S. Senate. She serves as the Tennessee Sierra Club's environmental justice chair. She supports the Green New Deal and Medicare for All. She was endorsed by Matriarch, Sunrise Movement, Bernie Sanders. Uh, and then she just got the uh, AOC's Courage to Change Pack endorsement, and of course, Cori Bush was one of the early endorsements uh, that she received. Marquita Bradshaw, welcome to the show. I'm just so, so grateful to have you. Thank you so much for having me. How are you today? 
I'm wonderful, especially now that we have you. Uh, so, Marquita, I mean, you have a an interesting story about this just election, how it turned. Um, let's just start off with, you know, you're running in this primary against a, a big funded uh, DSCC, Democratic Senate Campaign Committee candidate with millions of dollars in corporate money flooding in. And uh, and and you shocked everyone by winning the primary. Um, can you tell everybody a little bit about what happened on election night and <laughs> primary night, I should say? Well, yeah, election night was like any other night. I was holding towels as my team was waiting for the results. And at that time, we had a volunteer team. We had built a grassroots volunteer team across the state of Tennessee that was able to organize in all 95 Tennessee counties in order to secure the Democratic nomination. Uh, did, the Everybody was shocked. The world was shocked. Um, who was this guy you were running against? And, and why did they want to put so much money into his race? Well, the world was shocked, but we weren't because we knew what the work was on the ground. Because we have, been ha we, we have those conversations with people that start out how are federal policies affecting your life and connecting it and informing in a platform based on people's issues throughout the state of Tennessee. And so that is what drew people in the primary, the primary win, and what has been building the momentum that's going to secure the general. So, I mean, just, just to make it clear, because I, I, I do think that, um, you know, I understand the work that you did on the ground, but I think it's important for under, people to understand why it is so powerful to have a progressive running against a corporate Democrat. And I do want to have a kind of an understanding of who he was, because there's a case to be made on a national level as to why, and we'll get into your background in a second, why your voice, your experience is more powerful compared to, to, to the corporate-backed Democrats. So who, who was the person you were running against? So I, I always, on the other side, when I help people with political campaigns, we don't run against opponents. We run on the issues. And so it doesn't matter who the opponent is. We ran a race based on the issues they're facing. And so that is, it was people over profits. Okay, I mean, the main point I'm trying to illustrate is we were, wasn't two progressives in this race. It's, it's that there was a clear message that you were pushing, which was progressive, and he was representing a more corporate-backed, uh, uh, you know, folks want to understand these dynamics and why it is. In states that the Democrats have been losing over and over, why they're losing. And then there's this bright light in your candidacy and what you represented and you're organizing and clearly the people of Tennessee, which let's not let's remind people was Al Gore's Senate Senate seat, um, saw that that you could represent them. So let's talk like a little bit about your, your platform. What are, what are you running on? I am the first U.S. Senate candidate in the nation to run on environmental justice principles where the people are closest to the pain are able to inform a platform based on the issues that they're facing. And so I grew up in a community where there was a military landfill, simply put, full of stuff made to kill people and plants very effectively. And I understand what it means to be marginalized. And so our platform is all shaped around building healthy and safe communities where people live, learn, work, worship, and recreate. And on the hill we live on in the state of Tennessee, we all want clean air, clean water, and clean soil an economy that works for working people, and high-quality education. It's wonderful. Um, 
a friend of mine who's an activist, uh, there's this term that's being used over and over that there are these green tea party members, meaning there is appeal on environmental issues to even Republicans that may not agree on many, many, many other issues, but because their water is being polluted, because their air is not clean, because of, of these corporate interests that are coming in and making communities unlivable, suddenly they're voting on an environmental agenda. Are you seeing that on the ground, that, that there are folks that probably would normally vote Democrat thinking, finally, someone's running on an environmental platform? Well, I, that was the actual difference between myself and every other person in the uh, that were candidates uh, on the Democratic side and the Republican side, and also independents, is that I am an environmentalist, but I am also a person that has organized on human rights, trade policy reform, uh, tax reform, education reform, and so I've been in center uh, from the beginning fighting for just the right thing and what is righteous when it comes to people and those are the issues that people are concerned about those are those american the core value that are neither republican that are neither democrat independentist it's those american core values that people are being attracted to it's and it's it's really amazing because when you do lead with those values suddenly the partisanship uh, that divide that we all, you know, talk about. It disappears. Yep. Yeah, it disappears. And so what, what that meant was that you, in the beginning, in the primary, we were able to get first-time voters participating and owning the political process. And also people who considered themselves Republican crossed over to vote not only in the primary, and once you become a Bradshaw voter, you become a Bradshaw voter and also part of a platform that is informed with Tennessee voices. And so people become really vested and become organizers themselves. And that's how you flip a U.S. Tennessee. So what is um, what is the establishment? Uh, how have they been dealing with you? I mean, <laughs> I, I think like, you know, the establishment obviously is is concerned about the Senate makeup right now or should be concerned about the Senate makeup, uh, if anything. And and I can imagine that voters across the country are contributing to your campaign, knowing very well what's on the line um, and seeing somebody who is courageously standing for a set of issues that prioritizes working people. Um, how's the establishment like uh, embracing your campaign right now? I am getting the support of Oh, I think she's freezing up again. Oh, connection issues today, huh? Marquita, are you there? Across the United States. And they're mostly hardworking families. Naomi. I mean, Nai, Namiki. I'm, I'm telling them I'm, I'm freezing up. So we've, so we're at the point now that we can't concentrate on who's not here participating in a dance. We're concentrating on who's here, and that's people, hardworking families across the state of Tennessee and this nation who understands the importance of this race um, historically and also what it means for working people to have a voice in the U.S. Senate. The U.S. Senate is comprised of a lot of ultra-rich people, 
And so their policies actually reflect that. And so people across the United States have been giving and we have we have gotten to the point where we have reached the over million dollar threshold. And that is all because people just like you and um, donate on average $23. And so that's what's important. I just have one final question. I, I don't know what you're hearing on my end. There's, um, I apologize for the technical, I mean, the, the world that we live in today. Uh, I guess my last question before, because I know you're, you're, you're on the road right now across Tennessee. Um, what inspired you to run? I mean, in this moment for this seat, what, what inspired you? It, exactly what happened in my community, um, knowing what it felt like to feel not represented, and take ownership of that process, working with my community, my sisters, my mom, and myself, and forming a nonprofit organization to actually address those issues and engaging people in the political process, not, on not only just on environmental issues, but education equity and in our public schools, also um, addressing regressive tax reforms and social justice issues issues. That is what inspired me. We have been having federal policies directly intersect with our life. Day. And having that understanding that that is our framework that holds our old nation together, that we need somebody that's going to be courageous enough to go deal with the issues that people are facing and also deal with the hypocrisy that's unraveling our democracy when it comes um, to race it. Live on a hill where you have clean air, clean water, and clean air. Where you have workers that get paid a fair wage that's sustainable, and also where you have high quality education public schools where it is funded the same as our military. And that's what's attracting people to this platform and this movement, and it's why it's building momentum and they say it's a tight race. We're just waiting for that data to catch up with what we already know, that we will secure the U.S. Tennessee when it comes to November 3rd. Marquita Bradshaw, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we hope to have you back on after you've won. Uh, we'll have a, a longer conversation about what your plans are. Um, but, you know, you got to go out there. you got to win those votes. You're on the road. Uh, for folks who don't know about Marquita's race, definitely go check her out. Uh, we'll put the website in the in the bio. And, you know, she needs that money to go through the finish line. So if you have some extra change, definitely throw it to Marquita's campaign's way because she's got to get those organizers out there and knocking, you know, doing as much knocking on doors as you can in the middle of a pandemic. But uh, we are very grateful to you. And, of course, you're, you're a matriarch candidate. And so on behalf of matriarch, we're just really honored to um, to be supporting you as well. So thank you so much and have a great day. You too. All right, guys, we will be back in just a short second with our panel. Uh, Jordan and Nabil are back. We're going to talk about some of the news today. Crazy day of technology. Um, <laughs> turns out I think there's some, like, Zoom-wide operation. Uh, whatever, I don't want to, like, throw that out to Zoom. But 
Um, fun day when you're hosting a show and Wi-Fi's everywhere or Zoom's everywhere are stalling. So hopefully, let's put some good juju out there that this panel can get that Zoom going nice and smoothly. Uh, we have Nabila Islam, who is the founder uh, of Progre- Progressive List. Uh, she's a former candidate in Georgia's 7th District, and she's the National Organizing Director of Matriarch. And jo- Jordan Zacharin runs Progressive's Everywhere newsletter. Got a lot of news today, guys. Um... Let's just start off with the one that I opened with, which is just freaking crazy. Dianne Feinstein and her, uh, I don't know if it was a performance or if this is who she really is, uh, during the Senate hearings to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett and her her like little romance with um, Senator Lindsey Graham, hugging him. Uh, you guys are both on mute, so make sure you're on mute. But Nabila, like I see your face right now. This is... How are, how, I said in my opening, like, this is like the Romanovs being like, yeah, everything's fine. The workers are, they they love us. It's just like a few intellectuals who are not into us. And some like loud people on Twitter. Do they have any clue what's going on? No, apparently not. I mean, that was like, what, the hug hurt around the world? Um, It's, I mean, no doubt that Lindsey Graham, if he hasn't already, is going to use that in an ad. Um, There's, you know, he's in the, uh, the what do you call it the election of his lifetime where he's trying to hold on to his seat and so jamie harrison um i think he's gonna beat him but it doesn't help when you have senate democrats that are like cozying up to republicans um i just i thought it was ridiculous that that it it, it seemed like a little performance that they had jordan what do you think was it was this like a performance or is this who she is i think there's a few things i feel like you know maybe Republicans are taking advantage of an 87-year-old woman who uh, just doesn't understand the way things work now. I mean, I don't want to suggest she doesn't like... I mean, she's clearly out of touch. You know, she clearly just does not know what's going on in the country. Um, I think that what really troubled me was the fact that Chuck Schumer allowed them to do these hearings in the first place, or they allowed Democrats to show up. And we're seeing in the polls that this caused a lot of damage. Now, a majority of Americans are saying, sure, yeah, uh, uh, what do you call it? Confirm Amy Coney Bryant. Uh, now Americans are saying that they aren't so upset about fracking because Joe Biden said that he was not against it. So Democrats continue to give Republicans opportunities to take the, uh, you know, take every take the message right to, to take policies to the right. And at some point, it's not an accident, right? At some point, like these people aren't savvy, but they're not dumb. So I don't know if uh, Diane Feinstein just really likes uh, hanging out with Lindsey Lindsey Graham. I don't know if that she was, uh, you know, purposely doing this to piss off the libs, you know, piss off those kids from the Sunrise Movement that uh, talked to her about the Green New Deal in 2018. Maybe she's still trying to uh, still trying to get in there, uh, get in their craw. But clearly, Democrats from the senior level don't seem to really understand what's happening, nor do they seem to care about the advantages they already have. Well, I mean, and what really kind of irks me and confuses me is that you think that she wants to win back the Senate. Uh, you think that she wants to be the chair of the Judiciary Committee, or maybe she doesn't. Maybe she doesn't have any ambition left, and she's just perfectly fine where she is. Um, I don't even know if she knows there's an election happening right now, to be completely honest. How old is she? 87. Uh, 80, uh, a spry 87, yes. 87. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so like, but Jamie Harrison, for instance, he's not, like, a progressive. He's a former lobbyist. This isn't like, oh, I'm going to mess with those Sunrise kids who supported, not supported Jamie Harrison. Like, I, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. I think Simon. it's um, like, look, you can be there. It's politics. So like, you know, you, you can be friends with Republicans off the court, but when you're on the court, like these people, the bipartisanship doesn't really exist anymore. Um, and I, I think that chasing after this myth 
that we can all work together and, and like save the world together. It doesn't, it, I think it's, uh, it doesn't work. And uh, I think Jordan's right. Maybe the Republicans are taking advantage of an 87 year old Democrat that's been in her seat forever, um, who's not paying attention to what's happening around the world. Uh, that, that might be something that they're doing. I wouldn't put it past them. Well, what's interesting you say there is she's been there forever, but she's really been there since neoliberalism took hold of Washington. And there was an era where, yes, when they were off the court, they would go drinking. I mean, I don't even agree with that either because I think a lot of these people are despicable. But, you know, it was an era where, like, they had clear differences of opinions, hashed it out uh, in committees, and then went and drank a lot together <laughs> and many other things in Washington, and it was pretty much boys. Uh, then this 1992 era when she came into to office, um, you know, a female wave, uh, and, and that was, like, the neoliberal wave. And, like, that seems to be where actual bipartisanship happened. Is, what do you think, Jordan? Like, is this... I think she's that, just out of touch now? I think Democrats, uh, senior Democrats, are so obsessed with saving institutions that aren't worth saving and mm. have, in many cases, already been burnt down. The Supreme Court, again, doesn't have to be nine seats. They're just, you know, Republicans are saying it has to be now. You know, bipartisanship doesn't need to exist. They're just saying it has to because, I don't know, they... Uh, it's easier in the gym locker room of the, of, of the Senate, I suppose. And I think that's what's frustrating is, you know, they're trying to save these things that don't need to exist. And also, there was a quote that Richard Blumenthal said, Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut said last week after the hearings, he said, you know, she's going to, Coney Bryant's going to get, uh, Barrett, Coney Barrett is going to get confirmed. So what's the point of fighting it? And he said, what's the point? And I, that to me just says they're so disconnected from what's happening elsewhere in the country. You know, they're so disconnected from what's happening. There's millions and millions of people who are not going to get stimulus checks who are just suffering. There are millions of people who are going to have a harder time getting an abortion. There are millions of people who are going to choke on the smog because uh, she doesn't believe that climate change exists. And so we have all these Democrats who are asking what's the point, and they don't seem to really spend any time with their constituents. And what's amazing to me is Chuck Schumer, he's got a primary. He's got an election in a couple of years. Does he not realize the way New York politics have gone? You know, it's going to be tough to primary him, but... I would think he'd be trying to get ahead of that a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, th there's definitely a progressive wave in New York, and it will be di difficult with the money. But that's also why he had a stern talking to Senator Feinstein. Um, I mean, it would be amazing turn of events as if, if he found someone to primary Feinstein. It's like, all right, fine. You guys won. I'll give you this one. Just don't primary me, okay? <laughs> um, that's like the ultimate Chuck Schumer move. All right, on, on a similar note, uh, Mitch McConnell had talks with Donald Trump about pushing this stimulus package forward because he didn't want to hand one over to Nancy Pelosi. Um, you know, they seem to... to we expect that with Republicans, but the Republican Party is also like, yay, we love preventing anything from handing something to Pelosi. At least he has an enemy on the other side of it, whereas Democrats do nothing, and they're like, uh, we're not going to win anyways, and so we never declare the enemy, we never put some sort of show up, but, but at least McConnell is like, oh, well, it's Nancy Pelosi's fault, and then it's going to be on Fox News, her face is going to be on Fox News for the next week. Uh, Nabila, like, how are they outsmarting us? <laughs> I mean, Republicans are strategic, right? They're going to just blame us and continue to say the same talking point over and over again until everyone believes it's the Democrats' fault, uh, our fault. And so um, I think it's so gross that we are, you know, not focusing on passing a COVID-19 uh, COVID stimulus package uh, and putting politics over the lives of people. Uh, I think I saw a polling where it showed 70% uh, of people uh, <laughs> support uh, a, a stimulus package before the election and, and about 34% 
are for uh, you know nominating uh, getting a nominee, uh, nominee uh, passed before election day, and so um, it's just putting it's the Republican playbook putting uh, politics over the lives of people, and, and Democrats are just terrible at framing the message, and I feel like Republicans are really good at leading the frame of messaging and making us look like we're the we're the enemy of the people. Well, they're really good at framing the message about uh, fracking, as Jordan says. Now, no one thinks fracking's an issue. So clearly people are listening to them when they do speak. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe hopefully they'll vote. I don't know. I mean, Jordan, Jordan, like, how do we outmaneuver? Say we win back the Senate, right? And you have uh, Mitch McConnell there uh, still, still in leadership. How do we issue a little payback? Like, do you think it's possible? Well, you know, I think it, what the, the difficult thing is going to be that, you know, the filibuster is gone in a lot of ways for judicial things. I think Democrats just need to nuke the filibuster. I think it's yeah. going to be tough. You know, the type, the Dianne Feinstein's Richard Blumenthal's aren't going to want to do it. But all these Democrats are going to get elected to the Senate. You know, they've got to follow through on some promises. Joe Biden's got to follow through on some promises. And this is not just political. You know, if we don't pass a stimulus or if they don't pass a stimulus, I have nothing to do with it. They don't pass a stimulus before the election. Trump is not going to give a crap. Before, you know, afterwards, right? There's not going to be any stimulus passed afterwards. I guess it's the January. People are going to go through what? November, December, January. And Biden doesn't get inaugurated until the if he wins uh, until the end of January. Basically, that's three, four months before anything can happen. And I think Democrats don't want to hand Trump or any of these uh, Republicans that are running for re-election a win. Uh, and so that's unfortunate. Mitch McConnell, I think he's saying we're going to lose anyways. And so we've got like these two forces that really don't want to come together. And so come you know, January, Democrats are going to have to get rid of the filibuster right away. They're going to have to stop saying, oh, we care about the, the deficit right now. You know, that right. stuff, that's what Republicans are going to do. They're going to filibuster and they're going to talk about the deficit. And Democrats are going to have to, I don't know, when they win, spend the next few months in their home districts just seeing how bad it is. Because otherwise, they're going to fall back into the same trap. I mean, Fein, uh, Dianne Feinstein wants to bring back blue slips for judges, even though Republicans have decimated the judiciary. So in terms of priorities, I mean, this 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 brings us back to just like the crisis of the moment. Um, I said at the top of the show, 500,000 New Yorkers have declared themselves unemployed um, or have been declared unemployed. That's, of course, not an accurate number. We know there are a ton of folks who are not declaring themselves unemployed. And and that's just in New York alone. Um, that's, you know, one sixteenth of the city. It's crazy. It's, I think that's right, yeah, <laughs> if I'm getting that right, um, if I'm doing my math properly. So that's that's in the largest city in the country, and, and we know that those numbers are probably maybe even worse in some towns that don't have big industries that, you know, with, with tech and, and, you know, folks who can work at home and where the income is a little bit higher in these big cities, um, the, the, the average income. So with this crisis at hand, um, and there's a healthcare crisis, and, you know, there are reports coming out that whatever treatment is happening, um, it is not the same when it comes to what your background is, what neighborhood you're from, what your racial status is. There's this NPR story that we talked about at the top of the show in terms of uh, essentially, not a whistleblower, but a woman sharing her experience with a reporter of how doctors did not recognize her symptoms, whether that's their own internal racial bias or possibly something else. Um, How, I mean, like, if there's not a stimulus before February, How do we get to these much bigger issues um, like Medicare for all and and Biden's version of increasing access to health care or whatever his version is? I still don't know. I mean, Nabila, you're in Georgia, right? Georgia's very close. 
Yes. You're in a majority minority district. This is an issue that was very popular in your district in a red state. Mm-hmm. How do we push this down the Democrats so they know that this is a priority right now? I, I, I can't, I can't, I don't understand why that our representatives don't realize that they need to push on this immediately. Our people in my community are hurting. Um, there are, you know, millions of people that don't have uh, access to, well, health, don't have health care, especially in Georgia, since we have an expanded Medicaid uh, due to our governor. Um, people are, by design, slipping into poverty, poverty and it's people are uh, going homeless right now. Uh, we need uh, relief. We haven't, the last time we got 1200 bucks was what, months and months ago? Um, you can't uh, continue to ignore the problem uh, that's happening. And I, we can't be screaming enough I think we're we are people on the ground are making this an, uh, a relevant issue. I mean, like, look, seventy percent of people are saying that they support Medicare for all, and yet we're turning the other cheek on it. Sixty uh, percent of people say that they think climate change is real and they support a green new deal. And it's it's annoying that our the government isn't reflecting the will of the people and keeps on, uh, you know, making up issues that they care more about. Well, Jordan, I mean, on that point this is what I've been trying to say in terms of um, at least my voice in terms of, of voting in this movement with with leftists who feel like the Biden campaign is, is the same as the Trump, which is just fundamentally false. But what we don't have if Trump loses is we don't have this front. You know, there's been a lot of energy pushed towards Trump and Trump doesn't do anything. You can't move the guy. Like, you can stage protests all, literally the most, the most massive demonstrations in history have taken place in the last four years. The Women's March, the uprisings, and nothing changes. And Democrats can say, oh, it's because of Trump, because the Republicans are controlling the Senate, because of this, because of that. Well, now, if they do take control, there's a real opportunity here to declare it's an emergency and the buck stops at the Democrats, and there's no way around it. Like, do you think that there, I mean, do you think that's something that we can like do from day one and on January 20th instead of showing up at the inauguration, like literally protesting Joe Biden? You know, I think, you know, we look back at 2008 when Barack Obama won. Things were so terrible under George W. Bush. The recession had happened. Wars were still going on. People voted because they believed in Obama because they said hope and change. Right. And Democrats took back the Senate. Uh, they'd taken it back in 2006. And so much didn't happen. Right. We, you know, people, homeowners were not bailed out. People who lost their mortgages were not bailed out. Uh, you know, little things happened. We got the Affordable Care Act, but not a lot of fundamental change happened. We got to look at what happens in 2021 and kind of do the exact opposite. Unfortunately, Joe Biden was there in 2008, 2009. I'll be back there in 2020, 2021. But if Democrats win, they need to realize that people weren't voting for specific Democratic senators necessarily. No one was like running to the polls for Cal Cunningham. No one's saying, oh, I need Teresa Greenfield in there. they're, They're voting for change and they're hoping something big happens, right? And so what they need to realize is that like they are supposed to be the conduits to that they are not these people who've been entrusted because you know we love uh you know mj hager in in texas even if she's running a good campaign and so i think like that's what they need to realize i think that we have a lot of great people in the house you know we're going to have a lot of uh, more progressives in the house and i think that they need to be very obstinate about not just taking any bill i think you know the aocs of the world she had 400,000 people watching her uh, play among us last night on on twitch it was incredible you know, her, Mondaire Jones, Jamal Bowman, Ilhan Omar, all these mm-hmm. all these great progressives and people, you know, who aren't the world's necessarily part of the squad are also, you know, big progressives and moving up in the rankings of the committees. I think they need to be really obstinate. I think, you know, this is going to be Nancy Pelosi's last term. She said she's retiring after this. And I think that the House needs to be the place where a lot of this stuff 
is pushed. And I know that happened a bit in 08, especially, you know, the, the public option that never happened with Obamacare, but it really needs to happen, I think, in 2020. The House is where the, 2021, the House is where it's going to be at. But in, in, in looking back at that era, um, Obama was very angry. Like, on one hand, he wanted the movement to push him in directions when, I'm sorry, you're a leader. Like, you, you shouldn't have to rely on a movement to push you. Um, you're, FDR, yes, the movement pushed him, but he also sat down and said, I have to do this. Um, he waited for the movement to push him, but then when Congress pushed him, he got mad. He was mad at Keith Ellison, ran Tom Perez against Keith Ellison because Keith Ellison had the nerve to challenge him on key issues. Because Bernie Sanders was once rumored to have potentially challenged Obama uh, in his reelection, and that's kind of the root of a lot of that anger. I don't know if folks know this, but but like if 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 that happens this time around, I mean, who knows if Biden will will be around to any sort of retribution, but but they do take it out on the progressives and it does get very personal. So are we just going to end up in some sort of like infighting space? And then the Republicans just are like, oh, by the way, we're going to go take over the legislatures again. You know, I would say that, you know, like Nabila is a great community organizer. You know, she, she organizes the community down there. She's she's run for office. I think there's a progressive movement is a lot different than it was in 2008, 2009. It was very nascent back then. You know, we didn't have YouTube shows like this one. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's very different. And so I would say that there's a lot of grassroots money that can go towards these progressive candidates. I think, you know, hopefully people in the House noticed how many people got primaried and lost this time around. So I think that's different. I also think Obama had the cult of personality that Biden will not. You know, Biden want, is going to, if he wins, it's not going to be because people love Joe Biden and think he's the savior. You know, they're like, oh, he seems inoffensive and he eats ice cream. It's not going to be, you know, uh, yeah, we love him. He's, he's going to deliver us. Let's listen to whatever he has to say. In 2009, people were like, you know, Obama's our boy, back off. And I think, I don't think that's going to be there. I think he's going to, you know, I think, you know, establishment Democrats will put up a fight, certainly. But I don't think that they have the same, um, you know, the same ground to stand on that they did before. What do you think, Abila? So the leading voices in Congress of this past cycle have been progressives. And, uh, you know, we're obviously expanding our progressive, the progressives in Congress uh, next year. Um, I think that we're going to have to just continue to be the loudest one in the room in the room and making sure that, um, you know, people are hearing about these key issues over and over again. Uh, the thing is, I, a lot of, I feel like a lot of Democrats will get complacent once Joe Biden gets elected because they're like, we got rid of Donald Trump, we're done, right? No, we are just getting started, right? Um, we're just going to have to make sure. And then as far as uh, the legislatures on the ground, um, like Jordan mentioned, uh, this isn't, oh, wait, we're a lot more different. Uh, you know, there's more grassroots money. People are more, more organized. People are awake now, uh, and they fully understand. Having Donald Trump as a president in our lifetime has shown us how bad it can be when we <laughs> elect a fascist um, and have the highest uh, uh, division and racial tensions in, in our lifetime. Uh, and I think people are more than ever paying attention in, in, in a real way, in a way we weren't before. Because um, I've been working in politics since 2013, and I was one of the only like young people on the ground that was like, hey, guys, we need to go organize in Georgia. And we were like, what are you doing? <laughs> But it's changed. It's it's incredible. And Gen Z, uh, I have so much hope. They're going to save uh, the country one day. TikTok. One one TikTok and um, Twitch stream at a time. Uh, I think I'm going to join Twitch, guys, but I don't game. I mean, I don't game because I'm against it. I don't game because I become obsessed with these things. And then I, like, if I get into a series on Netflix, I then watch every single genre of that series for 12 years. <laughs> so anyways, one, one movement at a time. Just a side note, because I did see a comment about twitching. So 
Um, I like you know I I I we can only hope. Uh, we hope that people stay excited and 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 energized. My last question before we wrap up: Will they rebrand and really push more energy into Kamala Harris, given that she will likely be their choice as a presidential candidate, um, or you know, given Biden will be the most the, the oldest, uh, both Biden and Trump will be the oldest presidents um, if Biden's inaugurated on uh, on January twentieth. So will they rebrand her. Will they do all they can to give her that progressive way? I mean, is there a way we can move through our progressive agenda through Kamala Harris? Jordan? Yeah, I was going to say, I think that she certainly seems to be someone who kind of sways with the tides or goes with the wind, you know? So I think, you know, she was at first for Medicare for all until uh, she jumped ship in the summer of uh, 2019. So this is one of those, those things where I think she will kind of see where the winds are going and go with it. I think she's probably more persuadable than Biden. Uh, I you know, I assume that she will be kind of the choice, the establishment choice for president in 2024. I'm really curious to see who progressives seem to coalesce around in 2024. You know, I know that, um, you know, Bernie came out of the blue a little bit in 2016 because, uh, you know, because Elizabeth Warren didn't want to run and for other reasons. I'm really interested to see who and how quickly it'll happen that some sort of democratic progressive will start making some noise about, you know, pushing things to the left and wanting to run. I'm supporting Andrew Cuomo. Yep. Whatever it takes to get him out of New York. <laughs> That's the only angle. Like, please, honestly, please, please run, yeah. Andrew Cuomo. Please do it. Just yeah. go up there. Show everybody what a kind guy you are. Devote yourself full time to that campaign, too. Please, just, yeah. You got to have Brian Kemp, okay? So um, I'm here drowning with Loeffler, Purdue, and Brian Kemp. Oh. They're not that much different. You'd be surprised. <laughs> uh, Nabila, what, what do you think about the Kamala momentum? <laughs> That's uh, too funny. I mean, I echo the sentiments of Jordan. I I think that Kamala has been someone that has, you know, swayed with the tide, and um, she seems very persuadable. She wants to be the popular candidate, and uh, I think that she might take on some progressive issues. And I think if, if she runs for president, it might be another reflection of what her campaign was this time around, where she was like one t- one foot in with the you know with progressives, the other foot in with the, the establishment. So. I mean, hopefully, you know, it, she does become more progressive, but I don't know about that. Um, but it would be interesting to see who progressives put up in uh, 2024. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, and hopefully it won't be an 18-person um, primary again with, yeah. uh, with someone that was um, – uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm hoping it'll be uh, – I'm excited. I'm excited. Well, I mean – a lot can happen in four years, uh, just in terms of if you're looking at the industries. So two, two things just to keep in mind um, for our audience is Kamala Harris is a lot of these teams, like what made the Clinton campaign so powerful was that they were an institution for like 25 years. She inherited much of Bill Clinton's team, not all of it. She had her own team that she brought from the White House all the way onward. And they made a lot of deals in the last 25, 30 years. And so that was a force. And now that that force is fragmented in its own way, um, gone, retired, uh, you know, doesn't mean that they're, they're not still involved in the party and they're not still involved in many campaigns. But Kamala Harris doesn't bring that with her. Even Biden doesn't bring that with him. Um, Obama would be the only person who potentially could bring some form of that with him, but it's still not the same. They're not... 90s era operatives who really like staged a coup in the Democratic Party to win. So now we have an opportunity to stage our own coup in the Democratic Party and build our own crew. And I mean, with that, I will just leave on one note. That's an, a, another 
reason why I think Kamala could move. A lot of the industries that are affecting and and um, influencing our neoliberal lawmakers, oil and gas, uh, ties into geopolitical, military, industrial complex. You know, these industries are are being affected so much in the last four years, even based on the Trump administration and some of his his roles and his his maneuvers. I think at the end of the day, uh, we're going to be less reliant on oil and gas, which could create a fissure, a good fissure in the Democratic Party and an opportunity where we can actually move them on climate in a real way. Um, and and I think in terms of the military industrial complex, you know, we got to start putting more money. So Ro Khanna today just talking about some of these bombs and how many schools it could fund. That is starting to turn. And I think, um, you know, if 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 we're making that movement, that headway right now in four years, potentially we'll be in a much, much stronger place. So even if it means influencing Kamala in a good way or obviously having a strong progressive, uh, I think we'll be in a different space. We can only hope. Guys, thank you. Thank you for letting me do my soliloquy. I'm <laughs> feeling spicy today. Um, we will see you next week. We are a little under 13 days away from the election. So let's prepare. Next week's going to be a big show. <laughs> And two weeks from now, we'll either be crying together or celebrating. Or rioting. Fingers. Or cancel or, the show to riot. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll, we'll be on the streets. We'll just do yeah. the show live from the streets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Nabila, Jordan, thanks as always. Uh, and for those of you in the live chat, wow, Kowalski from Nebraska from the Majority Report giving us a very generous donation because it's his birthday and he says he's feeling extra generous. Love for the show, energy, and the, and you make Tuesdays on MR better. Thank you. Voted for Uncle Joe yesterday, mm, which has value in Nebraska's split electoral system, but at least it hurts the fascist. Good take. Special thanks to Harvey K, Professor Harvey K, mixing it up, as always, in the chat. And thank you to Midi Doctors for working the algorithms. I don't know what magic you're doing, but, you know, you're doctoring it. Thank you. And thank you, uh, special thanks to our moderators, Chokin and Bob, and everyone in the live chat. And thanks to Billy Big Bricks, to Dorsey, to Piper, to Ruthie on our team, who's taking a little break right now, to Mike, everybody, um, you make this show happen. And just a reminder to all, join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show, because that's how we're going to grow the show and make it even better than it is. Thanks, guys. See you tomorrow.